Test. Yeah. Is Test. My mic needs to come up a little bit. You want to handle it, Nir? Okay. One, two, three. DJ Nir Shafir. I'm going to try yours again. One, two, three. All smiles on the dials with Nir Shafir. <laughs> I think I'm good. I'm, I need You're to come good. Up. No, I need to come up a little, Nir. Okay. You might be too loud. Am I too loud? Emma's always too loud. <laughs> it's a truism to say I'm too loud. Uh, just, just watch there. Yeah. Just watch Emma's the whole yeah. time. Just watch me. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's begin. This is the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. In this special three-part episode, we'll be investigating the history of the Mediterranean and the global age of piracy. We'll be talking to three historians who've studied different facets of the history of piracy in the Ottoman Empire and the broader Mediterranean world. First up is Emre Safagurkan. He's appeared on the program dozens of times over the years. Now his official status is emeritus. He still joins us from time to time. What happens when two ships meet? Okay, do you have any idea? What, is it, what does a pirate do? Nobody knows about it. Like, so you see, you're a pirate, you see a merchant ship. What do you do? You just attack? Emre and I are sitting in an Istanbul apartment with Nir Shafir. Between the three of us, we have literally hundreds of Ottoman history podcast appearances. But the podcast is getting off to a rocky start. There's a couple reasons for this. The first is that Emra can't stop cracking jokes. But the second is that I really don't know what to ask to get the conversation started. We're set to talk about piracy, a subject that Emra has studied in detail. It's the subject of his most recent Turkish language book. But we've talked about it so many times over the years that I'm running out of questions. That's a, that's a good entrance. Um, oh, you mean that you, you, you're looking for a, a question? A question to us. Like, uh, who are, are there Ottoman pirates or something? No, that's no, a stupid. stupid. So it's not stupid, but yeah, we have, he's getting bored because this is, uh, he, he did that yes, yes, before. This is like the third time we recorded on this, so. The first one was really terrible though. Uh, well, if we already had like Yeah, you ask what changed in the 17th century. Ask a general question that makes the, you know, what changed in the 17th century uh, in the Mediterranean and in the oceans, uh, that made you know piracy a global, Ottoman piracy a global phenomenon. He had an answer. Well, everything has changed. The story has changed. History itself has changed. In you know, with the geographical explorations, I mean, the piracy has always been a part and parcel of Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea, because it, the, the sea in itself. Uh, because it has been shaped by a tectonic movement, was full with coves and you know uh, shelters, hiding places. It was really a paradise for a pirate or for somebody who wants to have an ambush. But that w changed in the 17th century because now these pirates w had the opportunity to take their trade to the open waters. Obviously, you know, geographical exploration in the 16th century and the intensification of trade, not only trade, but also ore extraction in the Potosi silver mines uh, by the Spanish after in the second half of the 16th century, but also the colonial settlements and their trade with their motherlands created so many, so much, uh, so ample opportunities. So uh, we see around this time, hand in hand with other 
global piracy centers in the Caribbean and in North Atlantic and also Dunkirk uh, in, 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 the, in Northern Europe, Algiers, Sela, Tunis and Tripolitania, Tripolis have become major pirate centers, pirate ports, privateer ports that actually managed to participate uh, in transoceanic uh, raids. For the first time, ships were able to leave the Mediterranean because you know that before the 13th century, no ships were able to leave the Mediterranean because of the adverse currents. So uh, in the 16th century, starting from the 16th century, they, not, they did not only leave the Strait of Gibraltar with ease, but they also plundered far away places like Iceland, Baltimore in Ireland, Azores, Faroe Islands, uh, Bristol, and places like that. They even held parts of the islands off the English coast for many years and used them as bases. So, And when you say they, you're referring to Ottoman privateers from North Africa? Only the North Africa part is beyond dispute. They are Ottoman. If you think Ottoman as a global thing, they weren't paid by the Ottoman state. They may be Muslim, 95%, but most of them, especially when we talk about the you know oceans, most of them had uh, northern origins people from uh, Flanders, uh, Holland, uh, northern shores of France, England, Irish, Scottish, Danish, because they were the ones who knew how to deal with the new ways of sailing in the ocean. You cannot train people in those ages. You have to, you have to find skilled people. And mm. if you, when the privateers in Algiers and Tunisia, which was Italian and Spanish mostly, and Turkish and Albanian in the 16th century realized they needed to participate in the Indian oceans. They invited all these northerners and most of, most of whom have converted to Islam and actually taking part in the governing of Algiers and in the, uh, in the running of the Corsair uh, privateer business. Because they, they were the ones who taught them how to build and use these new sailing ships like the galleon and the men of wars. But you're saying that a good portion of them were... Northern Europeans, Dutch, as the same types of people who would be pirates and privateers throughout the Atlantic, Indian Ocean, and Pacific yes, during that, that time? Yes, that is true. They have to be flexible. It's a very cosmopolitan environment, just like Byzantines using Turks, or just like the Turkic dynasties back in the day gaining control of the Abbasids. Okay, what, what, why did it happen? Because you needed them as soldiers, because you cannot train light arches. You need to go to steps. A similar logic applies to the seafaring if you want people for your navy you have to go to the fishermen but the mediterranean doesn't have them okay so you have so few fishermen second the fishermen in the mediterranean will be used to the roving galleys the ships that go by the oar that would be useless in the ocean so if you wanna wait for the spanish galleons coming with silver from the americas you need somebody who knew how to sail in the ocean and these guys have to be have to be either Dutch or English uh, seamen, and they were first employed by the Dutch and the Spanish and England. But after 1609, when the three countries came into 12 years of truce, they were unemployed. So they said, "Why not? Why, why don't we go to Algiers?" And they went there. John Ward being a very famous example. Simon Danziger, which was a guy from the uh, Holland, settled first in Algiers, then in Marseille, who never converted the. Islam, and who operated under the banner of Algiers as a Christian privateer. This is fascinating. I also had no idea that Algiers was recruiting 
sailors from northern European countries so that they could uh, man these larger ships on the open ocean. But maybe just to go back to some basics and to get into the nitty gritty of things, one distinction that people often make here and that you've made yourself here is between pirates and privateers. Uh, so maybe you could just explain like what is a privateer and how did that work here and uh, whose permission were they taking to undertake privateering and uh, were they successful? Well, privateering is a state-backed industry. Pirates are like small-time crooks. Privateering is like mafia related to the state and stuff like that. There's a code. But even 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 better than that, there's a they are tied by the international maritime law. They are part of the legal system. What we read about pirates have been written way way later when they were totally discredited in the 18th 19th century, especially in the 19th century. So when you look at the relationship between when a pirate attack occurred. They are either in accordance with the law or when there's something wrong, okay, when there's something illegal, some, most, at least half of the time it was the merchant ship or the French or English battleship that was on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a legal law and all the legal theoreticians of the international maritime law accepted them as legal actors. So they so had private, a contract. A pri- yeah, a privateer is a contractor from the state, okay, who actually was allowed who was carrying a letter of mark, letter of reprisal, which means that, let's say, England is at war with Spain. So if I have a letter of mark from my queen or from my king, then I can attack Spanish Spanish ships. with. While accepting the letter of mark, I also accept that I will not attack ship, French ships or Dutch ships because England, you know, my, my commission doesn't allow me. In the Muslim case, these guys were governing themselves. So the, 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 the Algerian or Tunisian pirates or uh, pirates in Morocco, Sela, Saleh, Rabat, today's Rabat, they uh, were getting their own letters of mark from their own divan. So when they did something contrary to the law, it's the, since it is the state to pay for the prices, they were being tried by their colleagues okay sometimes they let it slide because they're also the investors okay and before they leave they do not get only get a commission from their government they also get their, get a piece of uh, two two pieces of paper from the european councils located in that port one is a piece of paper saying look this guy is not going to attack french ships so leave him alone so let's say the french ships battleships came and they will just show it to them look we're not you know we are uh, legitimate privateers who actually vowed not to attack the French. The French will let them go. The second was the uppermost part of a piece of paper that the merchant ships were carrying. So let's say a corsair meets a merchant ship. The merchant ship has to accept the inspection. So these guys come and inspect. Even though it belongs to a friend, the power, they have to allow the corsairs, to ins- uh, the privateers, the Ottoman privateers to inspect the ship. So during that inspection, they have to present a paper. But since most of the corsairs don't know how to read, how are they going to make sure, how are they going to understand that it's actually a valid piece of paper that proves that they're French ship? They use this uppermost part that they took from the French, uh, from the French consul in Algiers, and they just, uh, they just actually... Uh, match the two and they understand. There, so there are lots of rules and regulations. There are courts. You can go to Divan Nalgiers. In the case of Malta, you can go to a Tribunale degli Armamenti and you go and then, you know, file a lawsuit against against uh, for, uh, against your captors or against the guy who attacked you. These privateers, you said that they used these the courts of Algiers, that they were judging themselves. I mean, what 
I mean, what was their government like? Every port city is on government. They were nominally tied to Istanbul, who used to send them uh, governors. But when they didn't like them, they imprisoned them. They sent them back. They only had this alliance with the Ottomans. It wasn't like one province actually coming directly under the Ottoman Empire. So they had this divan uh, run by the Janissaries. But the Janissaries here is a very large concept in which you see renegades coming not only from the Christians, but also from the Jews could be could be genocide. And this is the only place where a Jew can aspire to hold some government office in the entire Mediterranean. So it's Algiers. like wild Algiers. Algiers. I'm not sure about Tunis at the moment, but Algiers definitely. So it is a wild, wild west in a way. It's, it's a frontier. It is a frontier par excellence. It is a place where you see can see mixed 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 crews. They are generally portrayed by holy warriors and they believed in that, at least partly. Uh, there's this Gaza ethos that they operate under, but it shouldn't lead us to forget the fact that these guys operated with Christians hand in hand, and they didn't force people to convert, at least some, you know, including, excluding certain exceptions. So uh, it's the Janissary Divan who ruled them, but there is always a different power group. One group is Janissaries, who used to protect the ports from the Arabs in the in the vicinity and also collect tributes from them. You have the races, you have the Corsair captains uh, made up of renegades and natural-born Muslims. Uh, renegades in the 16th century being Italian, Spanish, Mediterranean people. But in the 17th century, extreme, all of them were Nordic. And uh, also uh, you have the Beylar Bey appearing uh, appearing appearing as a mediator. And also you have a disgruntled Kulolo people. Kulolo is the sons of Janissaries who weren't allowed any power in the government. So they they, mm -hmm. they, uh, they were also a very disgruntled community, always uh, trying to uh, start up a revolt. It's a very, it's like a republic, think of a republic, but always stuck in the Cromwell's time. It's always one group of people overtaking over the other. Well, one thing that stands out to me about that, when you say like that they're governing themselves and all this, sounds like a very masculine space. And while a normal state or republic or empire in that time period contains men and women. I guess in defining the space that is governed by the privateers, does it extend to the broader society in that region? So that they're, or is it essentially just? Well, at its peak, everybody makes money uh, out of courses. So you see the wives of uh, these privateers making uh, voodoo uh, stuff so that their husbands come back. Yeah, I mean, so they are part of it, but not on the ship, obviously. On the ship, we don't see any women. Uh, there is a lot of, there, there is a huge amount of influx of women thanks to these. Uh, a lot of Italians or uh, Christians ending up. If you haven't read Cervantes, you will see a lot of uh, secret Moors or, uh, you know, uh, secret, the crypto-Christian Moors, crypto-Christians Muslims were forced to become uh, Christians, uh, Muslims, and got, you know, found themselves in a harem, but they were running with uh, Christian fervor, which, again, Cervantes was using in order to explain his own situation because Cervantes has been a, a prisoner for five years in Algiers. So when he came back to Spain, he was tainted. Everybody thought, uh, even if you go to another country, you have to explain when you come back that you do you do have no um, heretical 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 involvement. So Cervantes was using these elements. All these renegades in Cervantes' now uh, place are generally running with their crypto crypto Christians who didn't want to become Muslims. There are a lot of people like that. Most of them female who found themselves in the harems and who raised a new generation of corsairs, maybe. Uh, so that's 
generally what the women's role are in the corsairs. Well, okay, so well, you just you just mentioned another really interesting thing: the famous Spanish author Cervantes having spent time among the yeah, five long corsairs. Years. You published something recently in Turkish. Apparently, this is a story that's been known for a while now. That there's like a a book about this. Yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting book, Cervantes in Algiers, by Maria Antonia Garces, who, him, who herself was held captive for two years by Colombian terrorists. So that's a very interesting book. She is the person, par, uh, you know, uh, par excellence, who could write a book on that. She found all the details about Cervantes thanks to this document that they have to, he has to leave behind. When he came, bro- he, he came back from Algiers, he needed to find witnesses for himself because this is Inquisition Spain. Five years in Muslim land, you need mm-hmm. to find people that would watch for you so you didn't do nasty things. By nasty things, I mean heretical things, not uh, <laughs> in today's sense. Not to digress, my favorite uh, pastime is digression, as you may have <laughs> realized by now. Emra then proceeded so, to go on a series of long tangents. Nir brought us back to the basic questions at hand. You spoke uh, earlier about a Corsair named Arnavut Lumurat. And you said that he was the best Corsair ever. Why don't we use that as an entry point to discuss what makes a good Corsair? Well, he's a good Corsair because uh, he lived long. He wasn't <laughs> get caught. And also he managed to raid Canary Islands with galleys. Galleys are oared uh, vessels who are not fit for ocean tr- navigation. So this guy was so actually good with navigation or his team was so good with navigation. He managed to cross the, he managed to go over the Straits of Gibraltar. And uh, But what makes... A good Corsair, Corsair, require me to make a distinction between two types of ships. One is galleys or ships that generally operate in, in the Mediterranean, where you do not have wind patterns. Like there's only one wind pattern from north to south, which means that most of the time uh, you cannot use the wind. So you need oars or you need local currents. But in the oceans, you have prevailing winds, okay? And you cannot use oars because once you use oars you need 300 oarsmen how are you going to feed them for so long a galley can only stay in the water for like a week or so at best so you have to touch it's like amphibious thing sails is a different thing you need able seamen 1520 and that's it to go back to the question i mean you're attacking which kind of ships or both or are you attacking villages on land if you're going to do land raiding you need galleys okay because the galleys you can just move on the in the beach but uh, with the sailing ship, you cannot come so near uh, near the shore. But they still sacked Baltimore and Iceland with those ships. But what they did was to leave them behind an island or a huge pile of rock, and they came with small boats. And then they attacked at the dawn and carried all these people that they could fire. Uh, fire. It's a very interesting moment, just you know, around 4.35 when it's dusk. Uh, you see, you know, uh, people shouting and then somebody's trying to ring the church bell and you've been attacked and most people are trying to make a run for for the mountains and they capture, round, round everybody up. And it's most of the time who brings you is somebody you know, somebody who actually was captured or who actually turned Turk, as was the expression, Farsi Turco, turned Turk and came, brought these guys. Uh, and actually uh, they inter- would lead them back to the yeah. village to raid them. Who would know where yeah. Iceland was? Yeah. Nobody, it's, yeah, it's this English guy praying on a, and most of the crew would be English or uh, Dutch or Danish. They were the ones who were accustomed to that. There were some genocides attached to them, but also sometimes people brought them for revenge. I know 
uh, local histories, if you read the local histories of the 7th century Ita Italian towns, you will see a lot of stories like that. He asked for the hand of his daughter, he was refused, then he brought the corsairs and he captured the daughter. Or he was, you know, he, his wife was raped and killed, or his daughter was raped and killed, and he couldn't get uh, justice done, so he turns Turk and brings the brings the corsairs. So people use corsairs for revenge. Uh, and most of the time, one out of three oarsmen die in the first year. Or if you're a sailor, 20, 30% dies in, a, in the first year or so, okay? So sailing means that you are at the very bottom of the society. So turning on your own people, shouldn't be that hard for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna die. They would eat. You know. So okay. So I've never heard of cannibalism, but you know. Uh, <laughs> but what happens when they're attacking other ships? First of all, the first question: Will they attack? They see a ship, they look at it. If it's a warship, they they will tend to run away. If it's a French warship, let's say, and they are at peace with French, no problem. They show their papers that they got from the European Council. They go away. Let's say they need to fight. They are good at running away, but in the first hour or so they have an advantage these are their ships whether oared or sailed were good sprinters but if the warship can follow them long enough they would like a 15-hour pursuit they will catch them and then take them over and it's it's been known to happen a lot actually and if it's a merchant ship if it's a friendly ship the merchant ship have to accept inspection from them so 10-15 people would go there inspect the goods and the passengers among the passengers, there's people b belonging to, to enemy nations. They could take them slave and the goods. But if they take the goods, they have to pay the freight money so that he could return the money. These are only theory. Mm. If they want to do, if they want to cheat, there are a couple of things that they could do. First, they could force the merchant to do something wrong, like not, not opening fire, not accepting. Because if you do that, you forfeit your legal rights. Once you, do, once you go out of the ceremonial thing, you, you, you forgot to salute Boom, you're fair prey. You, they can attack you. Or they could torture somebody, uh, making, making him confess that they're Jews or, I don't know, they're French or... Generally, Christians may, uh, require confession of Jews because they would uh, impound whatever the Jews have. The, for Muslims, it's, not, it's no big problem, but they would look for Spanish because they're always at war with Spanish. So they would find a small 14-year-old boy, torture them, maybe if they want to cheat. Sometimes they kill everybody. And then hope that nobody escapes. But once in a while, we know the story because once in a while, these guys survive and come back and creating a huge amount of scandal. Okay? Then the government have to pay indemnation. That's why there's a legal system. There's a, there's a system behind that. If you are an unruly captain on both sides of the thing, that's why you have legal recourse. Algiers or Malta, who's paying the prices for a diplomatic scandal, that's why they're checking up on their own uh, mm. uh, colleagues. And let's say they're going to attack. First, they want to come close. So th uh, they use false flags and they, they change clothes in order to fool them. And then they attack. Most of the times, the mer uh, merchants do not respond because they don't have that many cannons. With the sailing ships now, it's the age of the cannon. With the galleys, you, need, you do boarding and then you attack. So they surrender. So the tricky thing while surrendering, get ready for your new life as a slave. So they're basically, you see a ship coming to you, you see their Corsairs, you realize they're going to board you, and then you're, you're like, okay, well, all my stuff is going to be lost, I'm going to become a slave. Yeah. So you're just trying to hide as much yeah, money in your and goods. Old, in your old private parts, and I mean to the letter, that's what they did. And also sometimes wigs. By the way, the Corsairs don't generally violate women, they were really respectful, that was, a, I mean... 
seriously, we know a lot of instances that the Christians were surprised how orderly. This is an orderly business. These are professionals. This is not Jack Sparrow when they're like, oh, these are, when they go This out time I was to blame for the digression. When I suggested that Jack Sparrow, the main character of the Pirates of the Caribbean oh, yeah, franchise, actually, might have been a better guy <laughs> than the actor like who portrays him. This could be the end of the podcast. Johnny Depp might come after us. By this point, we had to start wrapping things up. But Emra left us with a few more stories. He was a slave once, okay? So death, you need money. And there's a funny story, a French botanic, I believe, I forgot. He fell, he, he falls in the hands of the uh, corsairs and lived the life of a slave for many years. And then he was ransomed. And on his way back, they encountered another slave ship. They'd been chased. He was so uh, nervous that he actually swallowed 20 big pieces of gold coin. Then he couldn't uh, get them out, so he needed to go to a doctor uh, who's a friend of his and said, why did you swallow all these, all, these, all these golden coins? And he said, if you were captured by the course and if you were a slave for five years, you would have swallowed the entire ship. Our conversation with Emra contained a lot of great takeaways about Ottoman pirates and corsairs. The first was that many of them weren't from the Ottoman Empire, especially after a rise in the importance of Northern European nautical expertise. The second was that, especially when it came to corsairs or privateers, they were far from a lawless bunch. Ottoman corsairs were not only subject to international law, they also had a degree of self-governance. And among the many other lessons, one of the most important related to the story of Cervantes and his period of captivity. Ottoman corsairs and their exploits were central to the history of early modern Europe and the making of the modern international order. Throughout our conversation, I recalled a previous episode of Ottoman History Podcast, in which we interviewed another scholar who focuses on Ottoman piracy. Joshua White is an associate professor of history at University of Virginia, and his recent book, Piracy in Law in the Ottoman Mediterranean, has unearthed new insights about the role of Islamic law in governing the practice of piracy across the Mediterranean in the Ottoman realms and as you'll hear in a moment, even outside Ottoman jurisdictions. In the scenic location of Burgazada, an island that is just a short boat ride from Istanbul, we recorded in an Airbnb that I had booked it wasn't the perfect space for an interview. Hot, stuffy. The host was sitting on the couch, smoking cigarettes and blasting music when we arrived. A little bit more Arabic. Really the one charm was a particularly affectionate cat who would become a sort of emotional support animal for Josh over the course of a grueling interview conducted by three different people. Myself, Susanna Ferguson, and Taylor Moore. Cat, would you like to comment? There we go. One of the most interesting parts of our conversation dealt with a chapter of Joshua White's book concerning the Qadu, or Islamic judge of Malta, which our listeners should note was not under control of the Ottoman Empire, 
but rather the Maltese Corsairs. This was probably one of the more interesting, at least for me, discoveries in the process of researching this book. We know that many Ottoman functionaries were captured in the line of duty and taken to Malta. Um, and while lower status uh, captives were often sent straight to the galleys as oarsmen, where uh, there was a constant need to fill the benches, uh, mortality being rather high on a galley, those who were more elite and would command a high ransom were sent to the slave's prison. Now, Ottoman judges were appointed from Istanbul and sent to their, their district for terms of one or two years, and then they had to go back to Istanbul again at the end of their term. Uh, what this means is you constantly have Qadis coming in and out of Istanbul, and any who are going by sea are at risk. Towards the end of the 16th century, very significant numbers of Qadis are being picked off by the Corsairs and taken to Malta. But they're not simply valuable captives who will fetch a high ransom, though inevitably they will. These are people who, captured with their writing stands and their reed pens and all the other accoutrements of their office, are actually extremely valuable uh, for the ransom industry. And this is for the very simple reason that for the ransom industry to work, you have to be able to have trust, which is paradoxical when the people who are capturing you are your religious and political enemies. But you need to be able to move massive quantities of money back and forth across the sea. You need to rely on brokers who are going to, if you are a captive, meet up with your family or your friends or deal with representatives of the state to collect that money and somehow transport it and complete this complex transaction in a way that leaves everybody if not satisfied, at least with the captive going home, the captor enriched, and the broker having made a tidy profit. And the only way in which this will work in the Ottoman Mediterranean, ultimately, is if that all those transactions necessary, that includes both the loans, the surety agreements to ensure that somebody pays if things go wrong, uh, the assignations of legal agency, all of that has to be concluded according to Ottoman Islamic law with the requisite documentation. Just so happens then that it's rather convenient that you have a whole bunch of Qadis sitting in the prison in Malta who are prepared to do just that. And so what we encounter is that in addition to there being a designated slave's Qadi on Malta, somebody within the prison community who's nominated to serve as their magistrate, and who fulfills exactly the same rules that he would were he on Naxos or in Izmir or in Galata or Istanbul or anywhere else. In addition to such a figure, is the Qadis of Malta are being asked to draw up these sorts of documents. And they were being referred to explicitly in the courts in the Ottoman core lands like Galata. When arrangements are contracted there, you must get a hujet, a legal document, from the Qadi of Malta. It says explicitly that. So it's understood that these guys are there and that they have work to do and that they're a part of the process. And we just set aside the fact that these are some poor guys who have been captured by Corsairs, had their beard shaved, and they've been tossed in a corner of a dungeon. Set that aside for a moment. They're still Qadis. They still have a job to do. And some of their documents that they've issued survive, and they look just like Hujets issued within the Ottoman domains, except for a couple distinct factors. One is that the paper doesn't look quite as nice. It hasn't had the nice polish that we see from documents drawn up in, in Ottoman domains. And second, whereas most Ottoman documents drawn up by Qadis in the mainland will say, written in protected Izmir, protected Galta, these say they were written in the island of Malta, may God destroy it. And in their signature, they mention, I was the incumbent Qadi of wherever I was supposed to be, and now I'm on the island of Malta. Other than that, there's no difference. Well, we still have a few in more In addition to offering a preview of the book, our interview with Josh White went beyond the book's content to offer more detail about the social history of piracy in the Ottoman Mediterranean. Here's Taylor Moore. 
I'm wondering if you can say more um, about what the gendered history of piracy in the early modern Ottoman Mediterranean looks like. Throughout the book, men are the primary actors. Women are conveyed not only as victims, but um, as pirate booty to be captured by corsairs and pirates. Were women merely the victims or spoils of war in the Ottoman Mediterranean? That's a great question. And no, women, women certainly are not just victims. While I have not encountered any evidence in this context of women pirates, there are, there are a couple of famous examples from the Caribbean, but I've not encountered any here, women are deeply involved in, in everything that comes surrounding piracy, that, that women may very well be involved in investing in pirating expeditions. There's no reason to doubt that they did, that they may well have been receivers of goods. There are certainly instances in which women are involved in loaning money to ransom people, including princesses themselves are involved in loaning money. Royal women more broadly are involved in ransoming captives, not just for financial gain, but for uh, and the gain of spiritual capital. We have the example, for example, the Valida Sultan, uh, Safia being petitioned by an Ottoman judge on Malta saying that to free a captive is worth more than a soup kitchen or, or a bathhouse. Um, and there's, n there's nothing worth more than having smart men by your side. Uh, so the gender comes in there too. But when women were captured, many were not ransomed. Those who were, again, we don't have the kinds of uh, documents on the Ottoman side that we do for the European side, where you get, of course, this broad genre of captivity narratives is captivity, narr captivity narratives written by women or in the voice of women become very popular and become part of the broader, you know, the kind of drumming up of the colonial project uh, that all these white Christian women being held in captivity in North Africa uh, becomes really critical, as Jillian Weiss has argued, for drumming up support for an invasion of Algiers, at which point, of course, there aren't any white Christian women hanging out in the Banos in Algiers, but that's beside the point. They can look to events during the uh, Greek War of Independence as inspiration for that. But there aren't really any comparable documents that I'm aware of on the Ottoman side. Which, of course, I mean, I just want to highlight this really important point that you're making doesn't mean that there weren't Ottoman women who Absolutely had been um, enslaved both by Ottoman and Catholic corsairs. Um, and so the growth of the captivity right. narrative literature is not, you know, it, that doesn't happen only in Europe because there are no instances of captivity among Ottoman women, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's a very important point, actually. Absolutely. And probably somewhere on the order of 10% of the Muslim captives taken by the corsairs of Malta uh, are women. But these women are not held alongside the men. It's unlike all the male captives who have to be kept together in the slaves' prison. The women are immediately sold, whether they're captured by private corsairs or by the uh, or by uh, private entrepreneurs. They're immediately sold off, and the ransom rates seem to be much much lower for them. I have only seen really uh, cases where they're ransomed alongside family, so they're captured with their families. In terms of gendered violence, the sources tend not to talk much about that at the initial stage of capture. No, we, of course, know that women who are captured and sold as slaves were kept and used for sexual service. What this, of course, means, though, is at least at the moment of capture, most pirates and corsairs, if they plan to sell uh, their captives, may not actually want to abuse their captives because they want to be able to sell them and legally, if... if 
they use them for sexual service, that's going to make things complicated. What we send, instead encounter much in literature, and this is true, for example, in Mustafa Ali, are references to uh, violence against boys who are sort of a third gender in Ottoman society. So this is a question I actually had, which is that, you know, you, you go into some detail in the legal texts about repercussions for, um, you know, illegally raiding property um, and illegally enslaving Ottoman citizens. But obviously, you know, the phrase rape and pillage, right, comes to our mind when we think about pirates. Were there any legal um, repercussions for rape? I mean, rape is extraordinarily difficult to prove in Islamic law. So I've seen no evidence of that being the case, at least in the courts. Outside the courts, uh, there are absolute repercussions for those Ottoman pirates who are found to have raided um, Ottoman subjects, and their targets usually are women and children. And mm. it requires a little imagination to know mm. or to, to guess what may be happening to them. Uh, the typical punishments, in addition to death, um, which is always popular, are sen being sentenced to life uh, on the galleys, which mm. has a certain poetic justice. Yeah, return them to the sea. <laughs> yes, and um, being sentenced to life on the galleys is usually a fairly short term because uh, the mortality rates are rather high. But, I mean, it's interesting in a way, but not really surprising that the sources will look past what is happening to women except after the point of sale, which is when then we know all about what's happening. And one of the things we realize very quickly in reading the court records is how rapidly uh, women are being sold and resold. But as long as you're doing this according to the law and... Well, pirates may not be terribly concerned with the law, at least initially, other than trying to represent those captives as being legally taken. Their owners care. And that means that you can't, there are waiting periods involved and, and, and things like that. And so these crimes are often, at least when it involves Ottoman subjects, discovered pretty quickly, it seems. The impression that one gets about the history of piracy in the Mediterranean from the Ottoman historiography suggests that piracy had a lot to do with boundaries, enforcing them and crossing them. And this is a big subject in the history of the Mediterranean in general. For the last part of this podcast, we're going to turn to a scholar who focuses on the other side of the Mediterranean. Daniel Hershenzen is a professor at the University of Connecticut. His recent book entitled The Captive Sea deals with the subjects of slavery, communication, and commerce in early modern Spain and the Mediterranean. In this regard, his work completes the picture sketched out by our first two guests by focusing on what was really at the heart of much of the early modern business of piracy and privateering, that is power. Power over people's bodies, enslavement, captivity, ransom, and the rules that govern these practices. Zoe Griffith sat down with Daniel Hershenzen to talk about his new book. We'll conclude this episode with excerpts from their conversation. One of the really nuanced and important uh, conclusions of the book or, or findings of the book is how, at the same time that these boundaries are in some ways policed, like the region is integrated by, by the movement of the information, the efforts of people um, trying to ransom these captives. You say only about 10 to 15% of the captives were ever ransomed. Um, but how did it work? Like Right, right. So we think about about piracy and slavery as disruptive, and obviously they were disruptive in the lives of people that were the, vic the victims. Uh, and we think about ransom also as a dividing activity, right? Christian zir, Muslim zir. Uh, and, and it was, that was the intention behind it. But 
the unintended results of this practice was to to link together in 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 a million ways uh north and south uh you know morocco Ottoman Algiers, and and italy italy, italy spain and france and portugal how did ransom work uh so you had i think you know you can we can distinguish between four kinds of factors uh religious orders friars uh merchants family members and rulers and you know you know whenever the friars emerge in the documents it seems mostly as religious redemption it's nothing it's not about my new mission it's not about the salvation of bodies it's about the salvation of souls uh, of community members at the same time the friars engaged in commercial activities they exported American silver and clothing and you know the very first the very beloved Spanish hats that in the Maghreb were a hot uh, commodity similarly merchants who obviously were economic actors also Uh, mobilized religious discourses uh, you know because uh, trade with the infidel was uh, prohibited according to canon law and uh, in order to do so they had to to to, to petition from the ruler uh, ad hoc uh, trading licenses with the Maghreb interesting and to get this they had to explain that they are uh, doing this to run some captives from the Maghreb never mind if they did or they didn't or they also engaged in other uh, economic activities but moreover the king that posed trade with the Maghreb citing canon law whatever issued these licenses again and again and again and, and did also he, did he receive any and he received yeah. 10% commission okay. from whatever <laughs> okay. activity that yeah. took place yeah um, parents that uh, old widow from Mallorca who runs uh, who exchanged her son with a Mallorca with a Moroccan widow that her son is that her son is enslaved in Mallorca these women transfer money too and in that sense they're economic actors but obviously they are not economic actors or at least it explains to us nothing about them about their interest their emotional involvement in the process if we just reduce it to reduce it to economics yeah. um, finally rulers I mean you know they did a lot of things uh, by 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 ransoming their subjects they claim sovereignty in the last uh, third of Of the 17th century when the Alawite uh, dynasty takes over and um, uh, Moroccan Sultans try to be extremely involved in ransoming captives um, they also ransom Algerians and and Tunisians and you know in so doing they don't they they claim um, spiritual guardianship over the Mediterranean making you know claims counter to that of the Ottoman Sultan about the Caliphal title so people did many things when they engaged in ransom You know most of the captives that you're able to get a, a very clear picture of um, and most of the people involved were were men it seems to be the nature of the sources but there was one figure in particular um, a girl I guess named Fatma who I mean her story is just one of the most kind of poignant and brings together so many facets of the work right right okay so Fatima we don't know her family her family name Fatima was uh, the daughter of uh, A high Janissary official um, she w- when she was 13 um, she was captured she was she was on a on a ship in the Mediterranean the, the Genoese fleet captured her we don't know exactly the, the precise circumstances it's possible that they were on on the way for the Hajj but like it's really unclear do we know where she was originally from Algiers Algiers sorry. yeah okay and I think that I mean I don't think I mean her father was the governor of uh, Bona Got it. Uh, a city that was subject to Algier yeah. in the Maghreb. She was sold to a Jewish couple in Livorno that held a number of slaves. And uh, from there, she managed to send the word back home. Her father negotiated her uh, ransom. 
a Corsican merchant that traded with Algiers on a regular basis uh, uh, was responsible to, to return her home. Fatima's uh, ship stopped in, uh, in Calvi in uh, Corsica, back then uh, a Genoese uh, colony. There the bishop saw the little girl that was so beautiful and just knew that she, she was a Christian. She was a Christian. He had to convert her. Uh, he converted her and she was baptized as Madalena. Once a Christian, she became a, com a community member, not a commodity anymore, and she could not be ransomed. I mean, it just was impossible. The Corsican go-between had to uh, uh, travel by himself to Algiers to, to deliver the bad news. I'll jump in here because things are about to get complicated. So at this point, Fatima can't be ransomed. She's been converted to Christianity. And here, her story begins to intersect with the story of other captives, and specifically the story of three friars who are visiting Algiers for the purpose of ransoming Christian captives. Three Trinitarian friars who uh, traveled, as they often did, to Algiers to ransom captives. They already negotiated the ransom of 136 captives. They paid everything. They were ready to board and leave back to Spain. The friars are in Algiers at the very moment when the Corsican go-between comes back empty-handed having been unable to secure Fatima's release. Uh, and in response, the Algerians uh, arrested uh, the Trinitarians. Now the story of Fatima's failed ransom has birthed another captivity story, but the friars knew exactly how the ransom game works. The Spaniards, uh, Mo one of the Trinitarians, Monroy, uh, wrote excessively. Uh, some of his letters were published. He pulled all the strings he could. And while all this is going on, another high-profile person is taken into captivity by Corsairs. The Bay of Alexandria, very old Bay of Alexandria, who was captured by the Spanish Sicilian squadron together with his two wives and an entourage of slaves and whatnot. Uh, this is, was not his first captivity. He was already captured like years before that by the Spaniards. Um, by that time, by the second captivity, he was old and unhealthy. Back to the friars. When he heard the news about the arrest of the, of the Bay of Alexandria in, Sic in Sicily, he saw an opportunity. He believed that this was the key to his ransom. I mean, this is an Ottoman high official. He worth a lot. Uh, he started pulling all the strings he could in, in Madrid. But the friar isn't the only person trying to work his connections for a ransom. The bastard son of the Spanish Marquis de Villena uh, was captured by Algerian pirates. Uh, he was trying to arrange his ransom. He failed. Uh, from there, he was sent uh, with his master. Following his master, he, he ended up in Istanbul. The Marquis saw the capture of the Bay of Alexandria as an opportunity to secure his son's ransom. His father was also trying to get the Bay to ransom his son. So the, suddenly, like two coalitions formed in Madrid, uh, both competing over the Bay in order to ransom their candidates. But then there's another twist. The problem was that the old Bay was so old and sick that he ended up dying in his oh prison cell. <laughs> yeah, this is very tragic. I don't know why I'm we are sorry. laughing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm... With the death of the Bay of Alexandria, the son of the Marquis ransom never materializes. And at some point he converted and died there. That is, in the Ottoman capital of Istanbul. His fate was the same as Fatima, with whom this chain of ransom stories began. Do we, I mean, so once she's freed, is that the end of her story? No, okay. so we know that seven or eight years later, she was married to a Christian in Corsica. And then I have several petitions from Spain from around the time when she, she was married, uh, submitted by a woman whose name I can't remember now, that claimed to have been her mother that uh, had certificates of her conversion from Rome 
and that petitioned the Spanish king to help her to help her re reunite with her daughter. There, there are many things here. I mean, first it tells us something about about the system of uh, slavery in the Mediterranean. You know, this this is an exchange system. This is a system. This, these are uh, mechanisms for the insertion of people into networks of exchange. But the system had complementary mechanisms for the removal of people from networks of exchange. People, for example, people could, could convert or could be forced to convert. And once that happened, they were not, they were, but so one, one point that I wanted to stress was that, that nature, that unique nature of commodities in, in, in a place where slavery is religious, it's not racial. Uh, you cannot change your race yeah. uh, in the pre-modern world. You can change your religion, at least in theory. The other thing is that such conversions occurred like once in a while, forced baptisms or conversions. And I said that, I, I mentioned that like in such cases, uh, slaves would write back home and complain to the rulers about it. And the rulers would, you know, war, war on the other side that they will avenge unless. So we were talking about negative reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And you would assume that, you know, such reciprocity just escalates endlessly, right? I mean, one blow, three blows, you know, <laughs> let's kill the guy. Um, uh, but interestingly, what we see is that negative reciprocity turns into a positive one, and that such instances of violence allow the party to negotiate the norms which they take for granted most of the time, because both sides assumes that slaves deserve uh, certain religious privileges. Uh, the right to practice the religion, the right to bury their dead according to ritual, the, the right not to be converted by force, the right not to be baptized, etc., etc., etc. So through such violence in instances, the norms were codified to the degree that by the end of the 17th century, the Spanish king uh, orders all the governors of his Mediterranean territories to assign burial spaces to Muslims uh, to the degree that in the 18th century, there is a mosque in Cartagena, uh, in Spain. Um, uh, and at some point, the Christians break in and break the lamps and like whatnot, and the slaves write to Algiers. And the governor of Algiers immediately warns the Spaniards that if the situation won't be amended, he's going to shut all the churches in Algiers and punish all the slaves from Cartagena. And eventually, the mosque was shut down like a few, a few decades later. But for several decades, in the 18th century, the there was a mosque operating in Cartagena. Rehumanized. In Fatima Madlena's case, do we have any idea how she felt about the conversion? No, but she, she was, was a child. She, she was 13 years yeah. old. So, I mean, yes, the Christian source, some of the Christian sources says that she converted out of her own volition, but I mean, give me a break. Sure. Fatima was free. She was, she was freed. And so we, we can compare her to, to, to one of the, to all of the Trinitarians, actually, who were enslaved. The Trinitarians left so many documents. They wrote notes to other captives within the city. They wrote, they wrote to the governors of the Spanish uh, garrisons in North Africa. They wrote back to Spain. They wrote to the papacy. They wrote to Genoa. Um, their letters were published. They wrote intelligence reports to the Spaniards depicting the, the, the castles in which they were arrested. Mm, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, just like there is abundant information that they produced. We don't have a single document in which Fatima talks to us. Okay. Interestingly, women are much more haired uh, they, they leave testimony much more as, as, as ransomers uh, because often it is the men. Men has m higher prospects of being ransomed and it's usually the women who ransom them. And then they negotiate with the crown, ask for help, uh, interact with widows, wives or whatnot on the other side, etc. Piracy, ransom, captivity and conversion forged paradoxical connections in the Mediterranean world. They were the reason for the Kata of Malta, 
They're the reason why there was a mosque in Cartagena, not because Iberia was any longer a shared space of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, but precisely because they were at political odds on the high seas. Similarly, a girl from Algiers, an old man from Alexandria, the bastard son of the Marquis, and the three friars became linked by fate, even though they had nothing to do with each other. How did this system end? I mean, when do we see the end of this kind of moment of integration of a kind of captive Mediterranean? In the 18th century, Algiers and Morocco are like European powers uh, using force, uh, sign peace agreement with them. They become more integrated uh, into the European economy. Uh, on the other hand, at some point, Spain also signs the peace, peace agreements with, with, with all of these powers, with Algiers being the last. And, and you know, once piracy stops being part of, 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 of the Mediterranean world, I mean, you don't, you don't have captives anymore. Yeah. And what, what would you say kind of took its place, if anything? I mean, does that mark a sort of additional bifurcation of the two sides of the Mediterranean, would you say? Well, I mean, I think that it, it, it requires us to, to figure out what, what, what are the main social dynamics that takes place, that, that, that takes the place that once captivity and enslavement uh, filled in, mm-hmm. that shaped, that shaped mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. Full interviews, as well as many other episodes related to the themes of piracy, captivity, slavery, and law in the Mediterranean, can also be found on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks to Emrasaf Agurkan, Joshua White, and Daniel Hershenzen, as well as all the other Ottoman History Podcast contributors who were featured in this episode, Nir Shafir, Susanna Ferguson, Taylor Moore, and Zoe Griffith. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for tuning in and join us next time. Are we slandering Johnny Depp or not? Well, I never heard anything about... I heard Johnny Depp's totally fucking crazy. <laughs>